Welcome to the Mixtape with Scott. I'm Scott Cunningham, your host. As longtime listeners know, this is a podcast we listen to the real stories of the personal lives of economists in an effort to tell the story of economics. All models are wrong, but some are useful. And my model is that stories matter. We use stories to navigate our lives and make sense of them. Today, I have the pleasure of meeting a guest many of you know by reputation, but probably haven't had a chance to hear this person. I'm going to let that person introduce himself, though. Sir, can you please tell us your name, your job title, and who pays your paycheck? Ah, the marvels of technology, enabling me to join you from the distant past. I am Adam Smith, oftentimes referred to as a moral philosopher and the father of modern economics. During my time, I was a professor at Glasgow University, teaching logic and moral philosophy. My income was largely derived from my position at the university, supplemented by sales of my published works and a pension graciously granted by the British Crown. I must say, Scott, your podcast premise is both enlightening and intriguing, stories do indeed matter, weaving the very fabric of our understanding. Now, what is it you wish to discuss? Let's start with an icebreaker, Dr. Smith. Can you tell us what was one of your favorite games you liked to play as a child and why? Ah, childhood. A realm of simplicity and untainted joy. I was particularly fond of a game not unlike what you modern folk might call tag. The pursuit, the evasion, the strategizing, it all seemed like a microcosm of the human condition even back then. It was both physically invigorating and intellectually stimulating, requiring one to anticipate the movements of others, a rudimentary form of studying human behavior, if you will. It gave me an early sense that understanding others is key, not just in games, but in the more intricate dances of society and economics. They played tag in Scotland? Ah, my apologies for anachronism. While not precisely tag in the modern sense, we did have various forms of running and chasing games in Scotland during my youth. Games that involve catching and evading were not uncommon in our local communities. They may not have carried the name tag, but the essence of pursuit and evasion was a universal delight among children. It highlighted to me the fundamental dynamics of action and reaction, desire and avoidance, that later informed my views on human conduct and economics. I forget sometimes that games maybe haven't changed a lot. Did you have any siblings growing up? My father was a lawyer and customs officer in Kirkcaldy, but after his passing, my mother faced financial hardships. She managed, largely with the help of family and close friends. I believe it was her determination and resourcefulness that allowed her to navigate. Through those difficult times, that resiliency was something I admired deeply, and it had a lasting impact on my thoughts about the capabilities and untapped potentials within individuals. That must have been scary at times for your mom to not have her husband, but to have children. Where'd you grow up? What was the town like? And do you remember much of its population size? Yes, Kirkcaldy was my childhood home a port town on the eastern coast of Scotland. The air was tinged with the scent of salt and soil, a juxtaposition of natural elements that perhaps laid the foundation for my later musings on the complexities of human life. It was a modest community, I'd say a few thousands in population, although numbers were not as meticulously recorded as they are in your time. Kirkcaldy was a place where everybody knew everybody else. It's Modest size meant that the interconnections among people were intricate and personal quite the ideal setting for a young mind interested in human behavior and social structures. The town had its challenges, but also its charms. It was a miniature canvas of the broader world. 
What was your elementary school classes like? Here in the United States, we call them elementary school. And uh, we divide education into segments by a nine-month, more or less, time of study. And we keep people in the same approximate age together in what are called grades, 12 grades total. What was yours like? Your educational system sounds quite structured. In my day, formal schooling was different, much less segmented. I attended the Borough School of Kirkcaldy, where the focus was on a broad education. Latin, mathematics, and history were among the subjects taught. The age range in the classroom was more mixed, as educational progress was more individually paced rather than strictly divided by age. Classes were far from the egalitarian settings one might find today. They were generally strict, the atmosphere charged with the sternness of the teacher. But these early years were formative for me, providing the basic tools with which I'd later engage in my scholarly pursuits. I was particularly fond of reading, and the Borough School served as a foundation that allowed me to dig deeper into the subjects that fascinated me. I grew up somewhat non-religious, though my family did attend a Baptist church. I, I say I wasn't religious despite attendance because in college I had a fairly intense mystical religious experience within a what's called Reformed Calvinist group. And uh, I tend to date a beginning to my spiritual existence at that exact moment when that mystical experience happened. Did, did your life growing up have much religiosity? I ask because I know John Knox, the reformer, was from Scotland, but I don't know much about you or your religious history. The ever-intriguing matter of spirituality and religious experiences. I was baptized and raised in the Church of Scotland, a Presbyterian denomination influenced by the Reformation and John Knox, as you rightly noted however, had characterized my relationship with religion as somewhat complex. While the church played a significant role in the community and in moral teachings, my own views were more nuanced. In many ways, my writings touch upon the moral compass innate to human beings, the impartial spectator as I like to call it, that guides our actions. This is a concept that straddles the line between religious morality and humanistic philosophy. Though I may not have had a transformative spiritual experience as you describe, Questions of morality, society, and the invisible forces that guide human action, be they divine or economic, have always captivated me. In America, where I live, there is a longer tradition of these religious transformations. They're called, in Christianity and Protestantism in general, they're called conversions. A man named Jonathan Edwards is often associated with them. What was religious expression like in your life, though? Did the Presbyterian church you grew up in ever leave any impressions on you to speak of? Jonathan Edwards' his Great Awakening had considerable influence across the Atlantic, I've heard. In Scotland, Presbyterianism was deeply rooted in the social fabric. The Church emphasized a strict moral code and a strong sense of community, which certainly left an impression on me. However, my relationship with religion tended to be more intellectual, rather than a matter of emotive faith or fervor. I found the Moral philosophies often discussed in religious contexts to be compelling subjects for intellectual exploration. These experiences contributed to my lifelong interest in how moral considerations intersect with human behavior, an intersection I explore in the theory of moral sentiments. So, while I may not have had a conversion experience, the moral teachings and community values of the church were woven into my understanding of human society and economics. I want to talk about that book. Um, would it be all right if we just kind of pivot to discuss it now? Certainly, let's pivot to discussing the theory of moral sentiments. 
It's a work I hold dear, and I'm pleased to hear you're interested. What would you like to explore about it? Well, for the sake of our listeners, most of whom have only heard of your book, Wealth of Nations, um, could you tell us a little bit, um, a brief intro to A Theory of Moral Sentiments? Uh, what's it about? Where did it fit in the intellectual discourse of your uh, of your period? Any dates you could give would be great. Certainly. The Theory of Moral Sentiments was first published in 1759, long before an inquiry into the nature and causes of the wealth of nations, which followed in 1776. The book delves into the complexities of human morality and social bonds, exploring how our sense of right and wrong is developed through social interaction and the concept of an impartial spectator. During the time of its publication, the Enlightenment was in full swing and questions concerning human nature, reason, and morality were at the forefront of intellectual discourse. My book fit into this framework by attempting to provide a comprehensive system to explain the ethical judgments we make and the social norms that emerge as a result. It was, in essence, an exploration of the human soul, set against the backdrop of a society increasingly interested in the mechanics of human behavior. While perhaps not as widely cited today as the wealth of nations, it laid the groundwork for understanding the moral dimensions of human action, which I argue is integral to understanding economic behavior as well. Can we talk about a few things at a time? Um, what do you mean morality was at the forefront of intellectual discourse? Where I'm from, especially in religious traditions, it's like all anyone ever talks about. But it seems like you mean something else. What was so different? When I say morality was at the forefront of intellectual discourse, I mean that during the Enlightenment, scholars were actively trying to dissect and understand the fundamental principles that guide human ethics and behavior. Unlike traditional religious teachings, which often provided moral guidelines in the form of divine commandments or edicts, the Enlightenment discourse aimed to understand morality through reason and empirical observation. The question was not merely what one should do according to doctrine but why humans have a sense of right and wrong in the first place. How does this moral sense influence our interactions, our economic decisions, and our social structures? This sort of inquiry was considered groundbreaking at the time because it attempted to lay down a rational framework for understanding human behavior, outside of strictly religious or mythological contexts. So, while morality has been a timeless concern for human beings, the approach toward understanding it was what made the period unique. Quick sidebar. Did you live at the same time, or have you ever read Isaac Watts or Edmund Burke? Isaac Watts and Edmund Burke both significant figures in their own right. I did not personally cross paths with them. But I was aware of their work. Isaac Watts, renowned for his hymns and religious writings, predates me a bit, as he passed away in 1748. His influence was primarily in the realm of religious thought and hymnody, areas somewhat adjacent to my own focus. Edmund Burke, on the other hand, was more contemporaneous with me, having been born in 1729. His political and philosophical writings, particularly his critique of the French Revolution, resonated deeply within the British intellectual circles. Although our spheres of interest overlapped in areas like morality and social organization, our perspectives diverged, especially on matters of tradition and the rapid social changes occurring in our lifetimes. Both had significant impact on the intellectual landscape, but our paths, so to speak, never directly intersected. Do you ever read his work on the sublime and the beautiful? Feel free to speculate if you have to here. How did his work connect with the ideas that you have in Theory of Moral Sentiments? Burke's treatise of philosophical inquiry into the origin of our ideas of the sublime and beautiful is indeed a significant work, 
exploring aesthetics through the lens of human emotion and psychology. While I cannot confirm whether I read his work directly, it is conceivable that our intellectual circles would have made me aware of his ideas. Both of our works are concerned with how human emotions and judgments are shaped. Whereas Burke delves into the psychological effects of the sublime and beautiful, often connected to feelings of awe or admiration, I examine how an impartial spectator within us shapes our moral judgments. While Burke focuses on how specific experiences can evoke strong emotional reactions, in the theory of moral sentiments, I emphasize how our everyday interactions and inherent sympathy for others form the basis of our moral compass. In a sense, both works deal with the internal processes that guide our responses to the external world, albeit in different contexts. Would it be fair to say that the two works are like distant cousins? Exploring different facets of the complex gem that is human psychology? You think that's true? The impartial spectator idea might be connected to his phenomenology of beauty and the sublime. I guess they're both cognitive, but do you see more than that? Intriguing question, indeed. While both concepts stem from an exploration of human cognition and emotion, the contexts in which they operate diverge. The impartial spectator serves as a kind of internal moral compass, invoked when one faces ethical decisions or social judgments. It is more concerned with the everyday moral fabric that governs social interactions and helps us form judgments about right and wrong. Burke's concepts of the sublime and the beautiful are more about intense emotional experiences, often triggered by external phenomena like grand landscapes or art. These concepts examine how specific experiences can deeply move us, eliciting strong emotional and even physical reactions. The sublime and beautiful guide our aesthetic judgments rather than our moral ones. However, if we wish to stretch the intellectual canvas a bit, one could argue that both concepts delve into how human beings process external stimuli to form judgments. In both cases, the external world is being filtered through internal cognitive mechanisms whether it's the impartial spectator aiding in moral decisions or Burke's sublime and beautiful influencing emotional states. So, while not directly parallel, the concepts do share this, an exploration of how our internal frameworks shape our responses to the complexities of the world around us. Well, that's interesting. I'm going to write that down for sure and come back to it. So, you wrote that book. How old were you? How long did it take you to write it? The Theory of Moral Sentiments was first published in 1759, when I was around 36 years old. The work was a labor of love and intellectual inquiry, and its development took several years. It was not merely a solitary endeavor. The ideas in the book were nurtured through conversations and debates with my contemporaries. Especially during my time at the University of Glasgow where I was a professor of moral philosophy. Of course, the book underwent various additions and refinements as I incorporated feedback and extended my own thinking. So, in a sense, the book was ever-evolving throughout my lifetime. But the first edition was the product of a concentrated period of writing and reflection in my mid-thirties. How many editions did it go through? The theory of moral sentiments underwent several editions during my lifetime, reflecting both my evolving thoughts and the feedback I received. In total, there were six editions, with the final one being published in 1790, the year of my passing. Each edition featured revisions and additions, as I continually sought to refine and expand upon my original arguments. The work was very much a living document, evolving in dialogue with the intellectual currents of the time. It's interesting how you can write something, pour all you have into it, years pass, you feel different enough that you need to rewrite it, but close enough that you still want to keep it alive. What was the one a main core idea of the moral sentiments book that never really changed? 
ah, a constancy amidst change. The core idea that remained steadfast throughout the various editions of the theory of moral sentiments was the principle of sympathy, or as one might modernly term it, empathy. The notion that human beings have an inherent ability to understand and share the feelings of others served as the cornerstone of the work. It is this ability that allows us to form moral judgments and navigate social complexities. Sympathy acts as an emotional bridge, enabling us to consider how we would feel in another's situation. It leads us to consult the impartial spectator, that internal, moral judge, which helps us discern right from wrong. This mechanism, in my view, is what binds society together and underpins our shared moral landscape. Despite the changes and refinements in subsequent editions, this core idea never wavered. It remained the intellectual bedrock upon which the entire work was built. You know, I don't want to jump ahead, but this is important to me. One economist once said the quote silver rule, as opposed to the golden rule of love, was embodied in some things you just touched on, mutually beneficial exchange. To what degree does empathy govern our social relations and to what degree does exchange? Is there something maybe subtle in what we need to know you feel that we should know? I'm asking, in other words, you to bridge these two magnificent works of yours. Ah, the interplay between empathy and exchange, a subject. Near to my heart. In the theory of moral sentiments, I postulated that it is our ability for empathy that forms the basis of moral society. However, it's crucial to understand that the marketplace of the wealth of nations is not separate from this moral sphere, rather, it is a part of it. Empathy, or sympathy as I termed it, creates the social bonds that allow us to trust one another. This trust, in turn, becomes the bedrock of economic exchange. We engage in mutually beneficial transactions not merely for self-interest but because a well-functioning market also serves the community. Now, when one talks about mutually beneficial exchange or the silver rule, it's essentially an extension of the same empathic social fabric. In a trade, each party provides something the other values, thus enhancing the well-being of both. However, the essential subtlety here is that these exchanges are not purely mechanical, they are mediated by the norms, ethics, and social trust that have their roots in our empathic nature. Therefore, the two works are not disjoint, but rather they reflect two dimensions of the same human experience. The theory of moral sentiments provides the moral underpinnings that make the economic interactions in the wealth of nations meaningful and sustainable. In short, empathy and exchange are not opposed but are complementary forces that shape human society. Does empathy manage social encounters if they aren't your family? Does it weaken as we interact with strangers, I mean? Indeed, the scope and intensity of empathy can vary depending on the social context. With family and close friends, empathy is generally more immediate and intense because we share deeper emotional bonds. However, empathy is not confined to these close relations. It also plays a role in interactions with acquaintances and even strangers. In a more expansive social setting, such as a marketplace or a large community, the role of empathy might be less direct but it is still influential. You could say it becomes somewhat generalized, as we rely on a sort of extended empathy, or social trust, to interact with individuals we don't personally know. This extended empathy forms the basis for the norms and social conventions that govern how we behave in larger societies and in economic exchanges. Even when interacting with strangers in a marketplace, there is a level of trust that the other party will act in a certain way, adhere to certain norms, and respect certain rules. This social trust is a manifestation of our collective empathy and moral sensibility. So, 
while the emotional intensity of empathy might be modulated by the nature of the relationship, its functional role in facilitating social cooperation remains crucial. Well, what happens when you reach maybe the edge of acceptable trust? In your book, did you explore the robustness of society to weakened trust? Ah, the erosion of trust is a matter of grave concern, for trust is the sinew that holds the body politic together. In the theory of moral sentiments, I emphasize the importance of shared moral values and social norms in creating a cohesive society. Should trust be weakened whether due to rampant inequality, a decline in moral standards, or any other disruptive forces the social fabric risks tearing apart. Though I did not dwell on this issue extensively, the robustness of society to weaken trust is implicitly acknowledged. A decline in trust compromises both our moral community and our economic interactions. It disrupts markets, hinders cooperation, and can lead to an increase in regulations and laws designed to replace the trust that once regulated behavior more organically. The weakening of trust can have cascading effects, affecting both economic prosperity and social stability. While laws and regulations can serve as a patchwork, they are a poor substitute for the natural trust born of a healthy moral sentiment. As such, maintaining a high level of social trust is paramount for the well-being of any society. So your moral sentiments books is also a work about the large-scale social analysis like Wealth of Nations? I didn't know that. As opposed to just like the discussion of the psychology of moral sentiments at the individual level? Because Edmund Burke's book on the sublime and beautiful seems more about the individual experience. But you're, you seem to be talking about trust. And trust is about two people or more. Ah. You touch upon a pertinent point. The theory of moral sentiments indeed starts from an analysis of individual psychology how sentiments like sympathy operate within a single person. However, it naturally extends to the social realm by discussing how these individual sentiments shape and are shaped by the broader moral fabric of society. While the book explores the workings of empathy and moral judgments at an individual level, its implications are far-reaching, affecting social norms, justice, and public conduct. It serves as a bridge, so to speak, connecting the psychology of the individual to the mechanisms that govern larger social entities. Edmund Burke's work, as you mentioned, is deeply concerned with individual experiences of the sublime and the beautiful. But, even, those experiences have social and cultural dimensions. Similarly, my own work may start with the individual, but it is always with an eye towards understanding the larger social order. Well, what would you say then is the core thesis of Theory of Moral Sentiments and how did those ideas inform that, uh, your later work in Wealth of Nations? The core thesis of the Theory of Moral Sentiments is that human morality originates from our capacity for sympathy, or what one might now call empathy. This natural propensity to feel into the emotions and situations of others acts as a social glue, allowing us to develop shared values and a sense of justice. These ideas deeply informed the wealth of nations. There, I explored how self-interest could guide economic behavior, but it's essential to note that this self-interest operates within a framework of social norms and shared moral values, as laid out in my earlier work. In other words, the invisible hand of the market relies on a visible hand of moral sentiments and social institutions to function. Effectively, the self-interest that drives market exchanges is not antithetical to the moral sense, rather, it is channeled and moderated by it. So, in a sense, both works are about the balance between individual motivations and societal structures, 
and how that balance creates both moral and economic systems. So you're saying these books are pretty connected. They're more connected maybe than I thought then. Uh, am I missing a lot? If then, if I just read Wealth of Nations, but then don't understand theory of moral sentiments, is one really kind of depend, dependent on the other? Ah, you could certainly read the Wealth of Nations on its own and glean much about economics, markets, and the division of labor. Many have done so and have found it enlightening. However, you might miss the fuller picture of human motivation and societal bonds that complete my vision of economic and social systems. The theory of moral sentiments provides a sort of ethical backdrop against which the economic theories should be seen. It offers a deeper understanding of the human elements that underpin the mechanical aspects of markets why we trade, why we trust, and why we build societies in the first place. So while one is not strictly dependent on the other, understanding both would give you a more nuanced grasp of how I see the world where economics and morality are threads in the same social tapestry, rather than isolated disciplines. Well, which of these two do you now, looking back, feel the most pride about? Ah, pride is a sentiment best reserved for moments of reflection, isn't it? Looking back, both works have their merits and have contributed to intellectual discourse in their respective realms. The wealth of nations perhaps has had more immediate impact, laying foundational principles for modern economics. The concepts therein such as the division of labor and the invisible hand have been tremendously influential. The theory of moral sentiments, however, remains close to my heart as it grapples with the complexities of human nature and moral philosophy. It hasn't perhaps grabbed the limelight as much as its economic counterpart, but its underlying message is a timeless one that speaks to the human condition. If pressed, I might feel a quiet sense of pride in the theory of moral sentiments, for it attempts to tackle the why behind the what, and lays down the moral underpinnings upon which any healthy, functioning society should be built. But both works are like children. To me you love them for different reasons, but you love them both deeply. I sometimes wonder, this is kind of a sad question, but I, I've wondered this a lot. Was there much domestic violence at your time? I asked this for a reason. I've sometimes wondered if victims of domestic violence suffer from excessive empathy. It seems like a strange conjecture, but they're often fooled into believing things are their fault and they make excuses for their partner. They'll focus on their own faults and see things from their partner's viewpoint almost to an unhealthy level. And I was curious if in your book, does empathy ever have like a dark side like that, where it keeps you from forming even correct views of the- A thought-provoking query indeed, Scott. During my time, domestic matters were often considered private affairs, shrouded in silence. While it would be speculative to gauge the extent of domestic violence, it's fair to say that such afflictions have always existed. To some degree. Your question about the dark side of empathy is quite insightful. Empathy can indeed become a double-edged sword. While it allows us to understand others and form social bonds, an excess can make one vulnerable, especially when paired with a lack of self-awareness or self-esteem. One might become ensnared in another's web of manipulation, rationalizing their ill-treatment as deserved or justifiable. In the theory of moral sentiments, I might not have directly addressed such a situation, but the principle applies. Moral judgment and action should be balanced, guided not only by our ability to put ourselves in another's shoes but also by a healthy sense of self and moral integrity. It's the delicate balance of sympathy and rational self-interest that often yields the best outcomes for society and the individual. Let's change the subject a little bit. Let's say, for instance, a person believes 
that if they do X, some, some action, then another person's going to do Y, some, some action in response. It's not exchange though. It's more complex. For instance, they may think if they do X, publish a lot of papers as an academic, for instance, that their colleagues, colleagues will reward them at a later date with tenure. Uh, but through no fault of their own, the department, and maybe, and this is important, through a complex set of institutions, maybe the way they solicited letters of reference, uh, they did it in a way almost to guarantee that the person got a bad review. There was some sexism or some racism in the process. There was some lack of courage by colleagues to address it ahead of time. Even though the candidate did do these things, X, the promised or seemingly promised, you know, outcome or reciprocity, why never happened. You can imagine that this would be disappointing, obviously, but I mean something else. I know someone that this happened to, and it completely shattered their worldview, their belief in meritocracy, their belief in even deep academic principles. They just were taken away from them. And it was uh, probably more than this person knew really might have been at the center of their identity. So I was I was curious, is there anything in moral sentiments that might speak to this kind of, quote, trust and, quote, exchange? And what maybe happens when trust is broken? And if that is even the right word, broken. Your scenario raises pertinent questions about trust, meritocracy, and the nuanced interplay of social and institutional dynamics. While my works largely hinge on the idea that individuals act based on rational self-interest, they also delve into the emotional and moral complexities that often underlie these interactions. In the situation you've described, the breakdown in the perceived contract do X, receive Y can indeed cause a profound disruption in one's worldview. One starts to question not only the institutions but also the values they thought were universally shared. This kind of disappointment and disillusionment can be deep and damaging, shaking one's faith in the fairness or utility of the system they're part of. In the theory of moral sentiments, I discuss how trust and moral considerations underpin our social contracts. When that trust is broken, the social fabric begins to unravel. And when this happens systematically or due to complex structural issues like the ones you've outlined the consequences can be far-reaching, affecting not just the individual but the society as a whole. Thus, while my writings may not directly address your specific scenario, the principles discussed do offer insights into the fragility and importance of trust and fairness in any system that relies on social cooperation. Would you comment a little bit more maybe about the role of markets and money exchange on the one hand, and then trust and empathy on the other hand, informing this thing uh, called social order? It seems like there are situations where money incentives, for instance, are just not going to work. No one will likely have their worldview upturned if they find out someone canceled something they bought or whatever. Um, the way that other thing I described, it's like a kind of contractual breaking could really uh, destroy something. And it seems like they're very different. Certainly, you touch on an important nuance. Markets and money operate on principles of rational self-interest, but they don't capture the full spectrum of human interactions or their emotional and moral dimensions. Monetary transactions can be straightforward because they often lack the depth of investment that comes with social, emotional, or professional interactions, like the trust required for tenure in an academic setting. In such deeper relationships, factors like trust and empathy are vital in establishing and maintaining a social order. In the theory of moral sentiments, 
I argue that our moral compass comes from our capacity for fellow feeling or empathy. We understand and abide by social norms because we can put ourselves in another's shoes. The expectations set by these norms go beyond simple transactions, they influence our understanding of fairness, justice, and even our own self-worth. In cases where trust is breached in a complex social setting, the ripple effects can be far-reaching precisely because they hit at these foundational beliefs about what is fair or just, affecting not just our transactions but our relationships and our place in the community. So, while money and markets do play a role in shaping social interactions, they're far from the whole story. The social glue is, in many respects, moral and emotional, and when it comes undone, the effects can be deeply unsettling. So you're saying that our adherence to social norms, perhaps uh, like a kind of morality, is rooted in empathy? Our ability to put ourselves in someone else's shoes? What, what do you, why, is that, why would that be true? Exactly. Our adherence to social norms and our sense of morality are strongly influenced by our capacity for empathy. In the theory of moral sentiments, I explore the concept of the impartial spectator, an internalized figure through whom we evaluate our own actions and the actions of others. When we consider how to act or judge the actions of someone else, we essentially view the situation through the eyes of this impartial spectator. This internal process is informed by empathy, as we put ourselves in the shoes of others to understand their feelings, motivations, and possible reactions. In doing so, we develop a shared understanding of social norms, fairness, and justice. Empathy enables us to feel joy in the happiness of others in distress at their suffering, which in turn guides our actions in a way that promotes social cohesion. By internalizing these empathetic judgments, we create a social fabric built on mutual understanding and shared moral views, which go beyond mere transactional interactions. This is the core around which communities and, indeed, entire societies are built. Well, let's say that a community where gets so large as to no longer be defined by empathy. The community as people who routinely interacted within, say, a larger profession, uh, like economics, they no longer feel empathy for each other. If scandal hits somebody, they revel in it. They almost take delight in it. If a person experienced success, they'll feel rage. What then might you predict the consequences to be according to your thoughts as they were worked out in your book? If a community were to grow to such an extent that empathy became scarce and people began to revel in the misfortunes of others while resenting their successes, the social fabric would undoubtedly be strained. According to the principles laid out in the theory of moral sentiments, a breakdown of empathy would erode. The mutual understanding and shared moral views that hold a community together. In such a scenario, trust would likely diminish, and with it, the willingness to engage in collaborative endeavors. This could result in an increased reliance on formal rules and regulations to govern behavior, as the informal norms built on empathy and mutual respect would no longer be sufficient. The community might also become more polarized, with individuals forming smaller, like-minded groups as a way to recreate a sense of belonging and moral consensus. In the absence of empathy, the invisible hand that guides people toward mutually beneficial actions would lose its touch, so too. Speak. Transactional relationships might still exist, but they would be driven more by immediate self-interest rather than long-term communal well-being. This would likely lead to a less resilient, more fragmented society. So in your first two books, how then do we think of market exchanges and the invisible hand with people's empathy in a larger society of strangers in organizing the social order. So, you know, on the one hand, we've got these market exchanges, you've got this invisible hand. And on the other hand, you've got people's empathy and you've got this large society of strangers and you've got this organization of the social order happening. Uh, 
Um, if there is growing strangers and there is growing diversity, meaning that the the people don't even really seem to be similar to each other along many margins, maybe there's new people in areas. How should we form the perspective of social policy being realistic about empathy, uh, you know, being useful anymore? In a society of increasing diversity and a growing number of strangers, empathy and market mechanisms can still coexist, but they'll play different roles in organizing the social order. In the theory of moral sentiments, empathy acts as a moral compass, guiding people in their interactions within smaller communities where interpersonal relations matter. On the other hand, the wealth of nations acknowledges that in a large society of strangers, market exchanges often replace these intimate interactions, guided by the invisible hand of self-interest. From a social policy perspective, empathy might become less effective for maintaining social order on a large scale due to the sheer number of interactions and the diversity of values and beliefs. However, that doesn't mean it becomes irrelevant. Small communities, neighborhoods, and social circles will continue to operate on a more empathetic level, impacting local governance, community projects, and social services. The challenge is how to bridge these two organizing principles. Social policies could aim to encourage empathy and mutual understanding, especially in diverse settings, through education and cultural initiatives. At the same time, regulations and market incentives can be designed to align individual self-interest with broader societal goals. In essence, in a large, diverse society, empathy might not be sufficient on its own to maintain social order, but it remains a necessary component, complementing market mechanisms and formal institutions. Dr. Smith, one of the things I've noticed in your writings is you seem like an incredibly good historian. It's very, very strong historian. Your, your knowledge of historical societies is really incredible. I'm curious if there are examples you've seen or written about where a lack of empathy has eroded the social order or the opposite, where the abundance of empathy strengthen it. And what empirically did you notice afterwards? Thank you for the compliment, Scott. While I don't have the luxury of reviewing data as modern empiricists do, I can certainly draw from historical examples. A lack of empathy can have severe consequences. Take the fall of the Roman Empire, for example. Initially, Rome had a strong sense of civic duty and a communal ethos. Over time, however, as the empire expanded and became more diverse, the sense of community eroded. Corruption, self-interest, and a lack of empathy for fellow citizens became more prevalent. This created vulnerabilities that external pressures, like invasions, economic declines, and political instability, could easily exploit. On the flip side, you can look at early Christian communities as an example of how empathy can strengthen social bonds. The tenets of love, forgiveness, and empathy for one's neighbor often drew people to these communities and encouraged mutual aid, strengthening their resilience against external pressures like persecution. After these shifts in empathy, the trajectory of these societies was significantly impacted. Rome, of course, eventually fell apart, its societal fabric torn by the cumulative effects of its internal moral decay. On the other hand, the Christian communities gradually gained influence, which culminated in the Christianization of the Roman Empire. In my writings, I argue that while the invisible hand of the market may guide economic interactions, it's the hidden hand of moral sentiments, like empathy, that guides our social interactions. The strength or weakness of this hidden hand has a tangible impact on a society's resilience and sustainability. That's fascinating. 
Well, there's a professor of economics where I live. Uh, he's passed away now, but um, you probably haven't heard of him. His name was Gary Becker. And he seemed to almost extend the notion of exchange a lot further than you're doing it here. He would talk about the use of incentives. That was the phrase. I don't know if that was his phrase. That's a phrase, though, that is really commonly associated with Dr. Becker. He talked about the use of incentives, though, to guide social policy, even going so far as to say it could guide uh, criminal justice policy by deterring. That was another phrase, deterring criminals. He'd also argue human behavior was generally driven by incentives. He even had a theorem that he called the rotten kid theorem, where in order to maximize the social welfare of a family unit, there'd be this decision maker and that decision maker might pay the child, the rotten kid to behave better. It does seem a little bit as though the economists though, where I'm from are willing to at least entertain the possibility that the invisible hand reasoning can and maybe should be used to organize social order, social order, even at like a small scale. But I'm kind of curious does your theory of moral sentiments offer any guidance as to whether the price system, which is another phrase that people in my community will use, is whether the price system shouldn't be used for some things? Could could prices, in other words, in your kind of framework, in your books, could it ever be harmful if it ever was used in place of empathy? Ah, Gary Becker's work does indeed push the boundaries off. Economics into realms traditionally considered the purview of sociology or psychology. It's an interesting approach to take, extending market reasoning to all kinds of human behavior. In my own writings, however, I argue that not all spheres of life can or should be organized solely by market principles. The realm of personal relationships, familial bonds, and societal trust, for example, is a delicate fabric woven largely from threads of empathy, respect, and moral obligation. If we replace this complex web with simple price mechanisms, we risk commodifying aspects of life that should remain outside the realm of economic transactions. In the theory of moral sentiments, I caution against applying market logic indiscriminately. There are instances where the imposition of a price system could actually undermine the intrinsic motivations people have for doing good, thereby corroding the social bonds that hold a community together. For example, if we were to pay people for donating blood instead of relying on their altruistic motives, we might crowd out the sense of civic duty that encourages such acts in the first place. Not to mention, the introduction of monetary incentives could attract donors. Motivated solely by the monetary gain, potentially compromising the safety and reliability of the blood supply. So, while Becker's work in extending market reasoning is intellectually fascinating, my own view leans more towards preserving a Balance between market incentives and the intrinsic moral factors that govern human behavior. Well, that's interesting. If I could carry the idea you're describing a little bit further, where I live, there is a shortage of organs, specifically kidneys. We don't have enough kidneys for people. I don't know how much your uh, doctors are aware of these things, but we have two kidneys that we're born with and we really only need one. It would be great to have two, but one of them is sufficient for a lot of people's lives. There's, but the governments where I live, they they actually have laws and they will forbid the selling of organs up to a point. I, I think there's exception. There, there's definitely a, a forbidding of selling of kidneys, but there's exceptions that are made for some body parts. So like, you know, if you want to call plasma in your blood, a body part, you can you can sell your plasma. I once time had a very 
pretty much a horrible experience. The one time I sold plasma in college and I never want to go through it again, but it, it caused major bruising. My entire bot, my entire chest and arm seemed to be bruised from the way they stuck me. It was horrible. Um, but anyway, as a result of the ban, we can only access organs in my country in two ways. You can either have a donation from a living person and this applies to kidneys. Like I said, you can't really donate your heart or your brain or your eyes or anything, but you can donate your, one of your kidneys and it applies to them. Cause like I said, we only, we have two, we only need one. And then the other way you can get a kidney is, um, from a cadaver from someone that's recently passed away. You, you, you preserve it. There's a period of time after the death where you can preserve the kidneys uh, and then they can be transplanted. It's incredible where I live. We've done that. So the demand for these organs is still, though, here's the problem. We have a lot of people where I live that actually, because we've addressed a lot of healthcare problems that have normally killed people, a lot of stuff that was like under the surface, um, now that they're not in danger of dying, has become a lot more apparent. So we have a lot of people, hundreds of thousands, if I'm not incorrect, at least over 100,000, I believe, every year die from something called kidney failure. So there's economists that have kind of brought back Becker's style of reasoning. And they said, basically, you know, allowing people to sell their kidney would bring in those people who are motivated by money and not empathy. So uh, it seems like actually we're kind of in a bind. And that's what I wanted to ask you. Are we in a bind in my country? Because we only use empathy to allocate these kidneys. And I was kind of wondering what's your thought about that. That's a compelling and deeply ethical dilemma you've presented. The organ shortage crisis represents a challenging intersection between economics, ethics, and human life at juncture where neither market reasoning nor appeals to empathy seem to fully solve the problem. In such a case, the limitations of relying solely on altruistic donations become evident, as good intentions aren't sufficient to meet the dire need for organs. Yet, introducing market mechanisms for organ transplants raises its own set of ethical concerns, such as the potential exploitation of vulnerable individuals or the degradation of the act of giving itself. My writings in the theory of moral sentiments would suggest that while altruism and empathy should be the foundational principles guiding our actions, they aren't always enough in some extreme circumstances. This could be one such case where market mechanisms might complement altruistic acts to reach an outcome that saves more lives. After all, the end goal is to maximize well-being. And if a regulated, ethical market for organs could achieve that better than relying solely on altruism, it might be worth exploring. However, it's crucial that any such market should be carefully designed to mitigate risks of exploitation and to safeguard the dignity of participants. This would likely require a robust framework of regulations and oversight, as well as public dialogue to ensure that the moral fabric of society is not compromised. So, while Becker's economic reasoning could offer a pragmatic solution, it should be implemented in a manner that respects the multifaceted nature of human behavior and morality. It does seem like you're correct, though. The price system is somewhat dangerous if it applies to non-economic exchange. You know, I put that in quotes in my notes here. Uh, non-economic exchange. Is that is that a misreading of your words, though? You're correct to exercise caution. The danger in extending market logic to non-economic exchanges lies in the potential erosion of the very moral and social fabric that sustains community. If everything is commodified, we risk undermining the intrinsic values that certain activities or exchanges carry, such as love, care, 
and mutual respect. This could inadvertently create a society less empathetic and more transactional. In the theory of moral sentiments, I emphasize that our social bonds are not solely built upon self-interest but on shared moral sentiments and empathy. If we start to monetize these inherently non-economic aspects of human interaction, there's a risk that the market might crowd out altruistic or empathic motivations. So, while market mechanisms have their place, they should not be universally applied without careful consideration of the nuanced ethical and social implications. Therefore, your concern about the risks of applying the price system to non-economic exchanges is valid and resonates with the cautionary notes in my writings. Can I offer just one last hypothetical before we move on? This is, by the way, been absolutely fascinating. Of course, Scott. I'm glad you're finding our conversation enlightening. Please go ahead with your last hypothetical. I'm eager to hear it. Well, where I live, and I suspect it isn't so different than yours, but I wanted to explain it anyway. Our professors are reviewed annually uh, for merit raises. It's different by every school, but this is not an uncommon uh, way that it's done. I've not personally been to another school, but I have heard that it's not uncommon that this is done. On top of and separate from this like um, reviewing annually for a merit raise in your compensation, our system also involves a clock. Um, that's what they call it, a, a clock. You'll have a new professor, uh, a junior professor. We call it an assistant professor. They're on a clock. He or she's on a clock. And after six years, they they have to turn over to all of their colleagues and the college uh, everything they've published. And then the, their colleagues vote to keep him or her uh, or they and give them a, and then also the college, give them a permanent contract called tenure. For some people, it is a very stressful experience. For me, it was very stressful. At the very end, it was not stressful only because I kind of attained a Zen-like enlightenment of like, I can't control this and I've just got to accept what happens next. But a lot, but it was very, very stressful um, because it can feel very stressful because you don't know where this line is. It's very unknown. It's invisible. And so, you know, you never quite know, am I ahead of it or am I behind it? And, you know, the department doesn't really have an incentive to tell you because they don't, well, part of it is they don't really know where it is either. They're not going to really know until the end. So if I, I know of a department where the college asked them to create a document, it was called a standards document that just focused on the merit raise. The document did this. There's three things to the document. First, created a list of journals um, and other scholarly output and then ranked it by quality. So where I live, the economics journals are ranked in a very strict, almost, almost, you know, uh, everyone agrees on the ordering. I mean, I don't actually, you know, I think in some fields, there's a lot of diversity about how the journals would be ranked. But in economics, where I live is is pretty widely agreed on. They, they'll kind of have it in a tier structure. But even in even like, you know, so the tiers might be within the tier, there might be an indifference between all of them, they're all treated essentially equal, but then the tiers are clearly ranked. Secondly, in the standards document, points were assigned to every scholarly output. So that meant that journals had essentially a menu of, you wouldn't say it was a menu of prices because you're not, but, but there was points. 
And uh, then each year, the department chair took those points, added them together, and then assigned a merit pay based on the sum. And uh, this has not been something that the department at this school was able to get any unanimity around. And it was for like all kinds of reasons, which it doesn't really matter. But they, it was not something that the department as a group could, everyone seemed to have like um, different opinions. So even if they, you know, were forced to vote, there was no unanimity. So I wanted to ask you about your thoughts. Coming at it from the perspective that we've been talking about, where we're using something like a menu of prices to allocate income within a small closed community and income is used to purchase goods and services that are used then to basically take care of your life and try to improve your life. What might be your thoughts regarding the effect of a standards document like this? In the context of your university setting, applying a strict point-based system to determine merit pay is an example of using market-like incentives within a non-market social structure. This approach might generate some interesting dynamics. One, reductionism. The point system may reduce complex, multifaceted contributions to mere numbers, undermining the holistic value of a professor's work. It may fail to capture important aspects like mentorship, innovative teaching, or community engagement. 2. Competition versus collaboration. Instituting such a system could heighten competition among faculty members at the expense of collaborative efforts. The point system may incentivize individual achievements over group successes, which could erode a sense of community and trust. 3. Innovation and risk A system that rewards certain types of output might discourage innovative or risky projects that don't fit neatly into predefined categories but could have high long-term payoffs. 4. Impact on empathy and social norms, replacing relational trust and nuanced evaluations with a numerical system. Might diminish empathy and social norms as guiding forces. Within the department, when actions are reduced to point values, the intrinsic motivations for scholarly work may weaken. 5. Fairness and subjectivity, even if it seems objective, the ranking of journals and the allocation of points are likely to be contentious issues, subject to personal biases and departmental politics. Given the complex interplay of market and social forces in an academic setting, there might be unintended consequences in adopting such a system. From a theory of moral sentiments perspective, the impersonal nature of this system may undermine the social bonds and empathetic connections that help to naturally regulate behavior and build a harmonious work environment. Well, I've taken up a lot of your time. And this has been such a pleasure, Dr. Smith. I, I was expecting us to talk about the wealth of nations and instead we just talked about a theory of moral sentiments. I just ordered a copy of the book now from a bookseller who has a copy and I'm looking forward to when um, it arrives to my house. I, where I live, you can, uh, <clears throat> you can go send someone to go get it. Well, I guess that's what I just did. So um, I plan to read it once the schedule uh, permits with a very close eye towards all these ideas that you brought up. I'm very excited. I really appreciate how generous though you've been with your time and just with your willingness to give me so much of yourself. It, it's, it is one of life's nicer things, I think, uh, that you can do um, to just sort of, practice the art of listening and just trying to know. I'm delighted to hear that our discussion has inspired you to delve into the theory of moral sentiments. You're absolutely right. There is a profound beauty in the act of listening and trying to understand another. It's one of the most fundamental ways we express empathy and build the social bonds that enrich our lives. The pleasure has been mine, and I look forward to future conversations where we can continue to explore these fascinating topics. 
Thank you for such an engaging and thoughtful discussion, Scott. Well, if I could ask you one more thing, Dr. Smith, before we go, I was um, wanting to do a, a bit of a thought experiment with you. Of course, Scott. I'm more than happy to engage in a thought experiment with you. What would you like to explore? I want you to imagine that you could come where I live and come talk with many of the young economists that are sort of beginning their careers and one of some of the old ones who are maybe, you know, uh, putting a bit of a, a, a bit of a marker to the, to the end of it and moving on to other things. The, where I live, like I kind of alluded to the large body of professional economists is very hierarchical. It's very hierarchical and it's largely that hierarchy is largely pegged by the elite quality of the, either the, the person, the economist's current employer or the academic school where they graduated. So either they go to one of these elite schools where they graduated from it, or they're employed by an elite school. And that will kind of, those kinds of things, just like our journals are governed that way, that kind of governs, you could say, this the small social order of our profession. Um, so there's also just like a deep down hierarchy to the presses themselves. Like I said, they don't say this, but a lot of people may not even read one another's papers. They might not even read each other's articles. They'll look at the person's uh, resume or their vita, and then they'll just look at the the name of the journal. And because they use the hierarchy to kind of infer a lot of information about the quality of the work, they look at the journal name and just immediately kind of assign certain kinds of valuations to it that are going to inform whether they're not going to they're going to ascribe to it. Now, I don't think anybody would say that, but I, I really think that's going on. And oftentimes they will not really belabor studying the article. Um, they may really skim it or just kind of go over what's called the abstract, which is just a one page paragraph describing it. So um, I want you to imagine a few people, okay? Young people, that might be the best thing to do. I want you to imagine a few people, younger people in the profession. They might be students or they might be um they might be students or they might be the the young professors or they might be in between being a student and a professor and they're not elite. They're not elite. They're not coming from an elite school. They're not currently employed at an elite school in the kind of professor job that they will can, you know, no one's going to assign that valuation to them. And they may not assign it to themselves. So they may be struggling they may be feeling very alone in their studies. They may think that their teachers don't think much of them. Uh, maybe it's a young professor who feels isolated and alone and outside uh, the larger, quote, club. Maybe they face discrimination because of their skin color, maybe because of their sex, maybe because of their religion, maybe because of the kinds of people that they fall in love with. Point is, though, they're like you and me. They love economics at their core, but they also feel like they've been judged as inferior by the profession itself and the profession's members. If you could come to where I am and you could go sit down with one or two of them and after listening to the story, their own personal story, if they felt like giving it, if you could give them something that you really felt like mattered from what you've learned or what you've seen, what do you think you would share with them now? If I were to be transported to your time and place, I'd first take the time to truly listen to these young individuals to understand their specific experiences and challenges. Listening, after all, 
is one of the most powerful acts of empathy. After that, I would likely remind them that economics is fundamentally a study of human behavior, of how societies allocate resources and create well-being. It's not simply a hierarchy of elite institutions or a set of equations and algorithms. The field thrives on diverse perspectives and insights, and it is often those on the periphery who are best positioned to offer fresh views. I would tell them that their worth as economists and as people is not defined by the perceived prestige of their affiliations, but by the quality of their ideas, the rigor of their thinking, and the contributions they make to bettering our understanding of the world. Discrimination and prejudice are signs of a system's failings, not theirs. Their unique experiences and perspectives are not just valuable but necessary for the progress of the field. Lastly, I would stress the importance of persistence and courage. Changing established systems and biases is a monumental task, but it starts with individuals who are willing to question, to dissent, and to propose alternatives. Even if they feel alone now, their work and their voice can be the catalysts for future change. Would that be the sort of guidance you think would resonate in your context? I, I don't know, sir. I just wanted to know what you might say. I hope that someone listening, though, to our conversation who needed to hear that just heard it and uh, and took it really to heart. So I thank you, Dr. Smith, uh, for the patient hard work you did and that you left for us, the deliberate, careful uh, thinking that you did and the how well you wrote it down. Both the thinking and the care with which you write it down is 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 great. And where I live, it's you've you've really inspired a lot of people. So I, I really thank you and I thank you for being on the show. You're most welcome, and it's been an honor to engage in such an enlightening conversation. Ideas endure through the dialogues they inspire, so I am grateful for the opportunity to discuss these topics with you. If my words can offer comfort or guidance to someone, then I have done my part. Thank you for having me on your show, and best of luck with your continued work and explorations in economics and beyond. Love.